Messiah, that he, he was here, but also that he loved people. He loves us. And that's part of what his miracles uh, attest to and show. And his longing to see people set free from bondage. And my hope today is that you will be encouraged that when we face the storms of life, and I promise you we will face storms uh, in life, that we can turn to Jesus through trust and experience the peace of God in our hearts and minds. See, God is with us in the storms, and he promises that. He doesn't calm every storm, but he's there with us. The launching point for today's message is centered around an event that can be found in Mark 4, 35 through 41. And I'll have you turn there in your Bibles because we'll, we'll read it here in a minute and we'll pray. But that's the launching point for today's message. I, I want to look at one specific miracle that Jesus performed that resonates so, so much with us today. See, there was a, a terrifying moment where there was a group of men that were following Jesus. And his disciples, they had gotten into the boat, and we'll look a little bit more about what he had done before and, and during. But they were crossing the Sea of Galilee with Jesus in this boat. And we find that story uh, in Mark 4, 35 through 41. And I would, I would ask you to stand your feet as we read this uh, passage in reverence to the Lord. Starting in verse 35, it says, On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow, speaking of Jesus, and they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Verse 41 goes on and says, And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, humble Lord, just in your awesome majesty. And we, we, as we read your word and we look at the miracles that you performed, Lord, just quicken it to our hearts. Lord, the hope today is that we would realize that through the storms of life, even though the boat's rocking and it seems like the waves are crashing on us and there's no hope for escape, that you've promised to be there with us through the storm, and we thank you for that. May you be glorified today in all that we do. In your holy name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. See, during his earthly ministry, Jesus touched and transformed countless lives. Everywhere he went, he was touching and transforming people. Everything that he did had a purpose. Like other events in the life of Jesus, the miracles were documented by a witness. And that's what's so spectacular about it is these aren't just fairy tales. These are documented eyewitness. And that's a part of apologetics is looking at these early church writings that happened right around the time of Jesus's ministry and shortly thereafter that leads so much credibility to knowing what uh, God says in his word is true. As a matter of fact, if we talk about eyewitness testimonies, the four Gospels record 37 miracles that Jesus performed. And that's just what's recorded, with Mark's Gospel recording the most. If you look, 
if you look at through them. Just a couple of them to name them. We won't go through all 37, but we see where Jesus turns water into wine. We all remember that. He heals an official son in Capernaum. He drives out evil spirits. We see that multiple times. He hears a, a, a paralytic, uh, somebody with a withered hand. He raises a widow's son, calms the storm on the sea, which we're going to talk about. Again, more demons, uh, healed the blind men, killed, or healed a bunch of leopards, right? He performed a bunch of miracles. But what's interesting, and if we really think about it, of all of those miracles that we read in the New Testament, in Matthew and Mark and Luke and in John, consider this, that these 37 recorded miracles, they're only a small number of the things Jesus actually did. It's only a small number of the multitudes of people that were made whole by our Savior. And we see the evidence of this in the closing verse of John's gospel. If you look at John 21, 25, it says, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Think about that. We think 37 miracles, wow. But here John is saying, if we could write a book of everything he did while he was here, we could fill the entire world. It's just, it's hard to wrap our minds around the things that Jesus did, and he did them consistently and everywhere that he went. So if we think through that verse, we can look through the recorded eyewitness testimonies of Jesus' 33 years of life and his three, a little over three years of earthly ministry. And we see those 37 accounts. And those 37 accounts, in order to be miracles, if we look at the definition, well, they kind of defy what we understand as scientific laws of natural laws. I mean, a miracle by definition, if you look at the definition, is a surprising and welcome event that is not explicable by nature or scientific laws and is therefore considered the work of a divine agency. See, if people could have come after Jesus and just recreated what he did and said it was in the name of another deity, it was in the name of Allah or, or some other God, little g-God, would it have the power? No, because it would have been repeatable. But Jesus's miracles were, if you think about it, a thumbprint, just like prophecy is. It's something that Jesus was using to establish his authority. And there's three things, three keys to understanding what Jesus was doing. Number one, Jesus was demonstrating and proving through what he was doing that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. And we can see the evidence for that in John 20, 30 through 31. Jesus performed many other signs. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that's still true for us today. If you look back just on an evidential basis, just on evidence, we see overwhelming eyewitness testimony. And that's what's so interesting about listening uh, to uh, people that, you know, the, I forget the name of the author that writes A Case for Christ. He came here to the church. No, was, yeah, that's not the one. No, Lee Strobel. He was a detective, right? Yeah. So, uh, no, it wasn't Lee Strobel. J. Warner Wallace. There it is. J. Warner Wallace. He was a cold case detective, right? A homicide detective. And he, he, he evaluated evidence of scripture based on what a court would look at when they're prosecuting cold cases, because it's similar in that this happened 2000 years ago, right? Cold cases are cases that, that, uh, and, and he was a detective that they would take and they would have to 
base evidence around things that were older, like eyewitness testimony and the, uh, the viability of those testimonies. So what Jesus was doing for them back then, he did for us today as well. Number two, Jesus's miracles also provided confirmation of the message about the kingdom of God. And we see that in a, that reference in Acts 14.3. In light of ministry of Paul and Barnabas, this says, so Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message by his, of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. Enabling. See, not only did this establish Jesus' authority over the message that he was presenting, it was used to help establish the authority of God, that God, the authority that God gave the apostles through the work of the Holy Spirit after Jesus ascended. We talk about gifts of the Holy Spirit. Same gifts that are present today are a testament to God's grace, to God's power, to God's love, to God's compassion for you and for me. Number three... The signs and wonders of Jesus testify to his limitless compassion for people and his longing to see people set free from all bondage. We see an example of that in Matthew 14, 14. We see many examples as well, but Matthew 14, 14 says, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. See, Jesus didn't come down to earth just out of some sense of duty or obligation like like somebody who maybe wanted to join the military or join a police force or the fire department right it's my it's my duty it's my responsibility uh, he knew that he wanted to do it but it was so much more than just that it was because god had such a deep love for us that he physically came from eternity down to earth put on filthy rags for you and for me God sent his son because he loved us deeply. Now, let me ask you guys a question. Do you, would you say that God sent his son for just a small group of people? I'm going to ask a question that gives me time to drink water. <laughs> did he just come for Jews, for Israel, or did he come for the world? He came for everybody. Some people would say, well, he only came for chosen people. Do we see evidence of that in scripture? Let's break down the most, one of the most common or well-known verses in John 3.16. And we have to ask ourselves, do we believe what God is saying? And it's a personal choice. Each one of us have to choose whether we believe what God says or whether we don't. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, and we all know this, right, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Do we truly believe that today? And you know, as I was studying for today's message, I like, uh, with the programs that I use for Bible study, I like to really look at the root meanings of words and break words down. So when you look at the word whoever, whoever believes, right, shall not perish but have everlasting life. And you really dig deep into the Greek word for whoever. When you take the time really to unravel the mysteries of this complicated word, to fully understand what it means. Do you guys know what the word whoever really means? It's going to blow your mind, I promise. Whoever, everyone, all. Isn't that pretty easy to understand? Because see, the Pharisees would have said, 
Jesus, the Messiah, they didn't think Jesus was the Messiah, but the Messiah was just coming for us. Not those Gentiles, not those other people. So Jesus didn't come to save a handful of people. He came to save all people and his miracles. We see that in the work in his miracles because his miracles were for all people, not just a set group. To the man with a needle in his arm, leaning against the wall, wondering if this will be his last hit. Jesus came for you and you can know him today. To the mother that lost a child and doesn't know if she'll ever feel anything ever again. Jesus came for you and you can know him today as well. For the father that lost his wife or the husband that lost his wife of 40 years and can't imagine one more day. Jesus is here for you today. And that's what his miracle showed. It touched every socioeconomic class. Jesus didn't care where you were born, what color your skin was, who you knew, how much money you had. He showed that time and time again. He came despite all of that that was in the world to say that he loves us. And I think that there is no denying that God has an unimaginable amount of compassion for us today. Because we see it back then too. And we certainly know that it's the truth today. The miracles of Jesus that we'll study today, the specific miracles found in Mark 4, 35 through 41, and we read it already. Jesus had been teaching and ministering to large crowds throughout the day. So if we set the stage a little bit and we think about, okay, where he was at, what he was doing, you know, he He'd been busy. He'd been working, right? He was out all day. He was talking to people. He was working miracles. He was healing people. He was encouraging people. And, and it's not like this. Like we come to church and we sit down and we, and we talk together and we fellowship. But he's out moving. He's walking, covering a lot of ground, climbing up hills and downhills, right? So he's exhausted. And he'd been doing this all day. So when evening came, Jesus decided to leave the crowds of people and take boats to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. See that marked as well. During the trip, Jesus fell asleep. Okay, we know that because they had to go wake him up, right? They said he was in the stern, he was asleep on a pillow. Jesus was tired, man. And why this is important for us is because it really sets the tone. It helps us understand that, yes, Jesus was 100% God, amen? But he was also 100% man, and he was tired. This was practical, right? He'd worked all day, he's out on the boat, he's exhausted, he lays down on a pillow, and as the boats were crossing, a severe storm arose. In fact, Mark describes it as what you would call in, in 437, a furious squall. And the storm can be described in the following way. Based on the account, if we look in Luke's gospel, we can see an account of this. But, the, but it was so violent and it was so sudden, you can still see these storms today because of the, the, the geography of the Sea of Galilee and how it's actually the second lowest uh, lake in the world, because of the heat at that area, it pulls these storms down uh, from the mountain by the Sea of Galilee and causes these really violent and, and suddenly onset storms, which is what we think they experienced uh, back then. And as a matter of fact, you can still, if you do a YouTube search, you can still see these storms in action today. People will have videos now and they'll upload them and you can see these storms come out of nowhere and they're just violent and they're, uh, they're heavy. Right? And we also have to imagine when we look at a storm, uh, there was a video that I actually wanted to show in place of this one, but I opted against it because I think it would have made everybody seasick and that would have been a horrible 
experience because it was, it was about the storms. It fit this perfectly, but the video is nothing but waves and, the, you know, waves and a, and a heavy storm. But that wasn't the bad part. The bad part was the camera angle was constantly shifting. So it even made me seasick. Uh, watching it. But, but it shows the example of what it could have looked like. And we think of a storm today on vessels that we may be out, like for instance, when I was deployed at the Coast Guard, you know, we were out on vessels and we hit some really bad weather, but we're in a big ship, very well engineered uh, and designed. And these, these weren't the case for them. So even smaller waves were pretty, pretty tough. But we see that this wave was so bad that the waves were coming up over the boat that they were in. And they were worried that that they were going to drown, that the boats were going to sink. So we see that intensity of the storm communicated by the reader, the reader there. And also the disciples, and you got to, this, it's not funny, but I just, I'm a very visual thinker. So as I'm doing studying, I, I try and think of how things looked in my mind. Does anybody do that? We're visual. Yeah, so we want to picture it. And, and the good thing is it helps me really wrap my head around it, but sometimes it makes me laugh where I probably shouldn't laugh because these guys were scared. But I can imagine these experienced fishermen, they're out there, they're, they're ready, you know, they're going across the Sea of Galilee, and now all of a sudden they're, they're crying and they're screaming and they're running to Jesus to save them. But it communicates, though, even through their experience, how significant this storm was. So they woke up Jesus to save them. And Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. And this is another part that, that I'm thinking through in my mind. And I think, man, this is, how would this have looked, right? So Jesus is asleep on a pillow. I don't know, who knows, does Jesus dream? I don't know. But he's sleeping there. He's comfortable. And uh, uh, these people come in panic. Jesus, wake up. And have you guys ever been woken up out of a good sleep? Because uh, it scares me, right? So I can imagine Jesus just getting up and, and he's, you know, kind of yawning and stretching and he just walks out to the, the edge of the boat and just says, peace, be still, and silence. And that's it. Could you imagine? That, that had to freak those guys out. I know it with me, like, whoa, who is this guy? Think about the intensity of the storm and then all of a sudden Nothing. In verse 39, it goes on to says, Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. See, suddenly the wind ceased, and there was that great calm. So it forced the disciples to do something. And it should force us to do the same thing here today. See, they were overwhelmed with fear and began to talk amongst, them, uh, amongst themselves. And we can see in, in Mark 4, 41, what they say to each other. It says, they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? See, the question, again, the disciples ask one another is a vital question even to us today. Who is this? See, even though the disciples had seen Jesus perform other miracles before this point, the disciples still didn't really know, exactly know who Jesus is. They couldn't really wrap their head around who they were. Because if you remember, they were, what were they expecting? Who were they expecting as a Messiah? Now, they know that he said he was one, but who were they expecting? Do you think they were expecting God to actually come down on earth? Or were they expecting a Savior more like a Moses? or a King David. 
And we see this here that they didn't fully understand that he was actually God because they had to ask themselves, well, who is this? Even though they had seen miracles, they'd seen him do things, but they still didn't wrap their mind around it. And the miracles of Jesus force us to come to a decision concerning Jesus. He was no mere man. He was also God. See, it's easy for us to say, well, I choose not to believe, but we can't discuss or we can't explain away the evidence God has given us throughout history, throughout his word, whether it's prophecies or his miracle. These things don't make sense in a natural level. We see an example of this in Psalms 107, 28 and 29. It says, then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble and he brings them out of their distress. He calms the storm so that the waves are still. You notice that Jesus spoke to the winds and the seas. And he asked the disciples after that why they were so afraid and without faith. See, as followers of Jesus, our faith is not merely to trust in him, but it's for our internal destination, right? God's going to save me. I'm going to make it to heaven. But uh, which he will, right? By grace through faith, we've been saved. But it's also to trust him in the little stuff, church. It's the everyday stuff. Right? Yes, Jesus came to save us. And his sacrifice on the cross echoes throughout all of eternity. Yes, that's true. But he wants so much more for us too. The little things in life that so often we overlook and think, I got this. God wants those too. He wants those too. When the disciples woke Jesus up to save them, he asked them, don't you care if we drown? We see that in Mark 4.38. And even though Jesus doesn't, really doesn't directly answer this, we know that Jesus cares, right? Because we see that example all the way up on the cross. He cared a whole lot. And that's the central point of what I want to make during today's message is Jesus calm the storms with just one word. This raging storm that had these grown men, some of them experienced fishermen, trembling. You see, it's difficult. Actually, no, it's really, it's impossible for us to fully comprehend God the Son actually being here. And I've been a Christian for, for a, a good part of my life. And it's still something that when I sit and I think about, because I think of, again, I think of things visually, it just humbles me that he loved us so much that he came for us. See, God did not bring sin into this world. We see where sin entered. Our free will choice caused sin. We chose sin and we choose sin to this day. And as a result, the pain, as a result of that, uh, we see the pain and suffering that we do in the world. Sin infects every level of life. But God says that even through that pain, he's there with us. If we look at Deuteronomy 31, 5 through 6, we get some encouragement where it says, be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord, your God, he is one who goes with you. He is the one who goes with you. And he will not leave you or forsake you. See, through our trials, through the painful things that we experience, God is constantly refining us. And we hear these examples like the refiner's fire and things like that. But it's the truth. And we'll talk about it here in a little bit. See, what the world means for evil, God can use for good. Have, you, have any of you ever heard of that term, 
well, God will bring good from it when you're hurting. Have you been in a situation when you're in pain and somebody says that and it really doesn't encourage you at the time? Right? It's almost like it feels like, and this is just me being honest, right? It almost feels like it's a, just a blanket statement you say when you're hurting and someone says, well, God will bring good from it because you can't see any good right now. But I'm here to encourage you today that God loves you and that he can and will. And we'll look at that here in a little bit. Paul tells us this very thing. He's speaking to the value God can bring from storms and the experience that we have in life. Romans 8.28 tells us, and we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. See, the Bible shows us time and time again that hardships and other tests of our faith bring a valuable reward. And James alludes to this in the very first chapter of James. And I love the letter of James because it's a practical or it could be called a pastoral book. And because James, he just gives us very down-to-earth advice, this very down-to-earth um, instruction to believers on how to live wisely and live with integrity. James tells the Christians to endure whatever difficulties come our way with the knowledge that God will use their struggles to help mature them as Christians. See, the first part of James is devoted to faithfulness through trials. Would you agree that there is a lot of hurting people in this world? A lot of people that are going through trials. As a matter of fact, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I guarantee you there's many people in this room today that are hurting right now, that you're in a trial right now. Pastor said it many times from the pulpit. What does he say? You're either getting ready to go into a trial or a storm. You're in the middle of a trial or a storm or what? You're just coming out of a trial and a storm. You know, I really wish that I could tell the unbeliever or any of us here today that if we would just accept Jesus, right, that life would be free and easygoing. But is that reality? Is that what we experience? Can being a Christian be difficult? Right? It's because we know that even through these hard times that there's a better way. And we have to have patience and we have to have trust, but God rewards that with his love and his mercy. If we look at how many Americans suffer from anxiety or depressive disorder today, by a show of hands, how many of you know somebody in your life that has or is struggling with some sort of anxiety or depressive type disorder? Just somebody that you know. Almost everybody's hands have gone up. Let's look at some statistics, and you guys know if you heard me talk uh, for our Wednesday before Easter, I love statistics uh, when I teach. But if we look at some statistics according to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, generalized anxiety disorder affects about 6.8 million adults currently. Panic disorder, another 6 million. Social anxiety, 15 million. Just generalized specific phobias, 19 million. Obsessive-compulsive disorder, 2.2 million. Post-traumatic stress, PTSD, 7.7 million. 16.1 million with major depressive disorder. And persistent depressive disorder is another 3.3 million. Now, admittedly, some of those are crossed, right? You can be diagnosed with a couple of things. So you can't just add them up and say that, you know, 80 million people. It doesn't quite work that way. But I think we can agree that that's a ton of people. That's a lot of people just in America that are hurting, that are struggling, that are suffering. 
If we look at another statistic, one that is really close to my heart because I'm a U.S. veteran, did you guys know that on average, 17 vets kill themselves every day? Every day, 17. That's like this whole front section gone every day because of pain, because of what they're going through. So I think there's no doubt that we're in a hurting and we're in a broken world with storms at almost every step of the way in some form or fashion, right? Some big, some little, some we can easily get through. Some takes a little bit more time. This world needs Jesus and I need Jesus and you need Jesus. And that's what I want to encourage you with today is that there's hope through that storm. And we're using this, this miracle that Jesus performed as an example of that. And that's what James was speaking about in verse 2, uh, the first chapter, is he's speaking about how we profit from trials, from trials. And I know if you're like me, at some point, I have been going through a trial, I have been struggling with something, and I've read this verse, and it's kind of made me stop. What do you mean profit in trials? How am I going to benefit from this? Because this hurts. I don't like this. This is upsetting. I'm in pain. Because what would the world say? The world's going to say, who hurt me? I want justice. Who did me wrong? I want to get even. But God says there's a better way. There's a deeper understanding of trials that the world just doesn't understand. If we look at uh, James 1, 2 through 4, we see that it says, My brothers, count, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. See, I know from firsthand experiences, I'm sure many of you can, that this isn't easy. It's not. One of the more difficult things for me to do when I'm going through something really tough, and I don't know if any of you can relate to this, but one of the most difficult things that I can do when I'm struggling is to be patient. Because I'm not a patient person. I want results, especially as a guy. My wife, something's going on, she's hurting, she's struggling. I want to fix it now, right? I want an answer now. But God, does God work on Jason's time? No, he doesn't work on my time. And I, that's, that's humbled me many, many times. As an illustration for it, and something I found kind of funny, uh, there was a man that was, you know, taking it easy. He was lying on the grass. And I don't know if any of you guys have ever done this, either by yourself or with your kids, but he was laying there and he was just looking up at the clouds, right? He was just staring at the clouds and he was trying to pick out shapes. You know, maybe that was an elephant or that was something, I don't know. But he was just laying there. Have any of you guys ever done that? I know I did it with my kids. You know, we'd, we'd pick up, we'd look for shapes. And then he was doing that and he was just kind of thinking and talking to God. And he said, you know, God... He said, what, um, how long is a million years to you? Just, just curious. And God said, and God responds and he says, you know, he said, well, my frame of reference to put it in a way that you could probably understand a million years would be, or it'd be like a million years to me, uh, or I'm sorry, it would be like a minute. A million years would be like a minute. Wow. A million years would be like a minute. That's crazy. So the man said, God, how much is a million dollars? God said, well, for you to understand it, it's kind of like maybe a penny to you, right? Just showing that I'm so much bigger and more, uh, more than you can understand. And he's like, wow. So a, 
A million years is it's like a minute and a million dollars is like a penny. That's crazy. He was just laying there and he thought, wait a minute, God, I mean, I know you answer prayers. Can I have a, can I have a penny? And God says, sure, in a minute. I, I have to say that I'm glad that worked because as I was reading it, I thought, man, this is like a dad joke. My, my kids would just be shaking their head like, wow. Yeah, that's right, man. Thank you. Hey, thank you. So it's a funny joke, but it, it really shows that there's a disconnect between our view of progress and time and God's. We just can't fathom it. And part of that directly correlates to our experiences today. See, we live in a culture that thrives on the instant. You see, we want things to happen right away. From packages arriving in the mail in two days and soon to be one day, to downloading movies immediately to our phones. A lot of things that are really valuable though, they take time. And the only thing that I can, I can put that into perspective for me is me and my wife's marriage. It was extremely difficult, admittedly because of decisions that I made when we were first married. But we've been married almost 20 years and it's just, we've grown more in love as time's gone on. And so many things in life are like that. It's difficult to overcome those urges and to be patient to wait for things to come over time. This desire for instant influences our spiritual lives also when we experience trials and hardships. But man, we've really got to patiently enter that process of seeking God and waiting on him. And I know that that's difficult, but it's so important. Just because we do not see immediate results from our prayers and other spiritual disciplines that we might have, we must not give up. We need to persevere and walk by faith. And we do that by staying in his word, by reading, praying. And what's the third thing? What does pastor always say? Read your Bible, pray, and obey. It really can be that simple. And I know so many times when I'll just forget to read the word or I'll forget to spend time in prayer, I'm thinking, man, why am I struggling today? Oh, wait, I didn't put God first. I put myself first. There's two examples that will help us understand this. And the one I talked about it earlier is the, the example of refinement by fire. And the refiner's fire is often an illustration in scripture uh, and its significance can be missed if we don't really put some thought into it. See, in the ancient world, a silversmith was someone who would work with precious metals, gold, things like that. See, precious metals, as rare as they are and as great as they are, they still have impurities inside of them. So what they would do is they would heat those precious metals up to that melting point and all those impurities would rise to the top and they would kind of spoon them off, they would collect them off and they would repeat that process again. More impurities would come up, they'd scoop them off over and over again. And that's really the example of what God is doing in our lives. Now he's not causing the trials, he's not testing us, he's not causing the pain, that's a result of sin. But he's using that for good and that he's constantly refining us. Another example would be grapes into wine. So a picture can be found in the wine vineyards. Winemakers state that the best wine comes from grapes that struggle and experience stress. So if you take a grapevine and you make its physical requirements for water scarce, or if you make its physical requirements for water and nutrients easily accessible, then somewhat counterintuitively it will give you poorer grapes. However, if the object is to stress the vine and make them a little bit more scarce, 
then they say that it will actually produce uh, better grapes. So don't, and again, don't misrepresent what is being said here. God is not, God is not some puppet master pulling the strings, the strings of life, watching and causing pain and suffering. He's not. He is intimately familiar. He, we, he came down himself, put on that cross, took all of that pain himself. If we look at James again, James 1, 2 through 4, just as a reminder because it bears repeating, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that your testing, the testing of your faith produces patience. Please hear me, your suffering is not wasted. The pain you are going through is not wasted. Through our suffering, he washes away more of the impurities until finally his reflection is smiling back at him. Again, what the world means for evil, God is saying, I love you, I am with you, and I will never leave you. I think, and again, I would not, I'm not a mom. I couldn't be a mom. I would probably die if I had to go through labor. But I, I was asking my wife this question, uh, and I, I would imagine that it's probably the same for most of you today, for moms at least. Would you go through the pain of childbirth again just to be able to have that beautiful child of yours? And childbirth is such a beautiful example of, uh, there's a lot of pain, I know, just because I've experienced five births with my wife, and that's just being in the room and, well, the pain in my hand from her squeezing it. <laughs> but, uh, but that pain is temporary in the scheme of the blessing that your child is. And that's a great example of the pains that we go through in this life because we know that one day the Bible promises that God's going to wipe away every tear. See, the pain in this life, the trials that we go through, the struggles that we go through are temporary compared to this, the, the, the view of eternity and what God promises us. 1 Peter 1.7 tells us that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the rev revelation of Jesus Christ. See, church, you are much more precious than gold. Your trust in God is much more precious than gold. And that's just not the big things in life. That's the little tough stuff. The stuff, again, that's so easily overlooked that we don't think a lot about. I have a story that I, I put in here. Uh, and this is something that happened about a year ago. And admittedly, I am not trying to compete with people that have gone through big stuff. I've gone through big stuff, but that's not what this story is about. <clears throat> but my day, so I, I had taken a, most of you, if you don't know me, I work, my day job is, in the oil and gas sector as a safety professional. So I, was, uh, I flew out to Odessa, Texas, which is really big with oil right now. It's gotten a lot bigger since 2015-ish um, to do some audits on a facility. And if, has anybody ever been to Odessa? It is like the Taft of... Okay, okay well, if you're from Taft, I apologize. Uh, let's see, what, the oil Dell. No, I can't do that either. So it, there's nothing around right? And I love water. There's no lakes around. It is flat. There's rattlesnakes everywhere. Uh, it, it is just dry and it's just dry. And that's just not my idea of a, of a beautiful place, unfortunately. Um, but so I was at this place and I'd been there for three or four days. I was ready to come home. 
Uh, and, and so I, I got to the airport. Uh, my flight was scheduled for 4 p.m. And the plane was a little late taking off. Not a big deal. You know, you, you do your pre-boarding check. You get right through security. It was good, right? I was in a good mood. And I'm ready to go. <clears throat> so the plane takes off a little bit late. Not a big deal. We're flying from Odessa Midland Airport to, I believe, Dallas. And then we're going to do a layover there and then fly me uh, all the way back home. So the flight was supposed to take about 50 minutes, and we were probably about 45 minutes into it when the, you know, the pilot came come over the, the intercom and said, and I'm not going to attempt to recreate it because I'll just make a fool of myself, but he said, hey, you know, we, we, um, we're supposed to land you know, in Dallas in five minutes, but we really, we've been in a holding pattern for the last 20 minutes because there's thunderstorms. He's like, and now we're on our way back to Midland. Odessa because we got to refuel. Okay, well, that's never happened, but not a big deal. I don't fly that much. So so we get there, we land. I think we're probably on the ground for about 30 minutes, maybe an hour as they refuel and they're getting clearance to take off again. And so we're, we're sitting there, it's hot, we're hungry at this point. Um, and they, you know, the pilot comes on and says, you know, we're not going to be able to take off. Everybody, basically, you got to get off the plane. Um, go see the, the attendant and find out, you know, where your flights are and what's going to change with your flights. Okay. Not a big deal, but it was a full plane and it was a big plane. So I was in line for about an hour and a half after that. Right. So it's just these little things just kept going wrong. So I'm, I'm in line. I finally get up there and I'm the first person that they announced this to, uh, which was frustrating at the time, but they said, you know, we're gonna have to actually cancel the flight. Uh, we, we, we got some flights in the morning and I'm thinking, all right, I'm thinking, well, that's not a big deal. When airlines cancel flights, you know, they'll put you up in a hotel. Oh, they don't put you up in a hotel if it's weather related. So I don't know if you've been to the airport in Midland, Odessa, but it's, there's nothing. So I finally get to a hotel. I get to sleep. And, they, you know, they set me up and said, okay, well, we're going to get you on a return flight. You'll be home uh, tomorrow. It's going to be later, obviously, but you be, should be home by 11. All right, cool, good. So I had a connecting flight, only like 30 minutes between when my flight landed. And I don't know if you guys have ever been in an airport when you have a 30 minute layover time, but you are running, right? So uh, wake up the next morning because I'm going to get there two hours early, even though it's a small airport, not a lot, but I don't want to take any chances. I want to get home. I got a notification on my phone. Well, your flight's been delayed an hour and a half. (sighs) Okay. So I only had a 30 minute layover, which now completely changed all my flights. So fast forward, I get to the airport, whatever, I'm going to get there. I go through, you know, we had some other problems when I got up to the ticketing booth and the ticket machine wouldn't work. That took me 30 minutes to figure out. But the, just the accumulation of all of it really centered around when I was going through security, right? So I finally got all that done. You know, it's been probably 18 hours at this point and I'm just frustrated. So I, they, they scanned my bags. I walked through that body scanner where you hold your hands up and well, apparently they thought I was hiding something in a place that I really can't discuss. <laughs> so I'm like, sure. Well, okay. Yeah, of course I am. So I got a, uh, yeah, I appreciate you laughing, babe. <laughs> so I had a very large male TSA agent that was oh so passionate about his job. <laughs> Identify that I, in fact, was not hiding anything. And that I was safe to go. So, I, I, you know, I got to my final destination. But at this point, guys, when church, hear me what I'm saying. It's a long story. It's a long story. But it, have you ever had those days where it just feels like, man, everything is against me? It's just the little stuff. It's nothing big, but it's just every little thing seems to be going against me. Have you ever had those days? And, you know, it was funny. You would think, you would think 
when I went through that that um, machine and then they had to, you know, embarrassingly escort me because I had to be searched. You would have think that I would have been frustrated, but really it's kind of the Holy Spirit just quickened in my heart that it's okay. I got this. And I really want to give that encouragement for you today. Even if it's not the big stuff, church, we can give the little stuff to God. We encounter the storms in life and it feels that they are crashing against us and about to overcome us and drown us. We have to put our faith in Jesus and know that he loves us and cares for us tremendously. But God does not calm every storm and he never promises to calm every storm because we're in a world that's broken. And it's really not about him calming every storm. It's more about him being with us, him, us being in his presence that gives us that peace. His presence is what calms the storm. It's like growing up and having a bad dream, right? As a kid, you have a bad dream. I can remember these, right? And your mom comes in and she comforts you, right? Mom didn't change the dream. It was still frightening. It still, care, it still scared you, but mom's comfort or mom's presence calmed us, right? It calmed me. And that's what we're talking about here. Her presence replaced the fear of that dream. An illustration that kind of makes me laugh too is there, there was a, a grandfather who decided, you know, he wanted, and, and I think this is kind of funny because uh, my daughter is pregnant and, you know, she's either going to have a boy or a girl. We'll find out next month um, in September. So I can kind of picture myself in this because I'm, I'm going to be a new, new grandpa, right? Uh, so the grandfather decided to visit his grandson one day and found himself getting in trouble with the child's, you know, with mom. And each time uh, the baby cried, granddad would go into the room and take the child out of the crib. And mom kept insisting, dad, stop it. You've got to leave him in the crib. And after this happened a couple times, the mom noticed how quiet it was in the house. She's like, man, you don't, how many moms have that sense? It's too quiet. Something's wrong, right? Yeah, the guys laughed because we know we were the reason that it was quiet. So she went into the baby's room, and to her surprise, she found that her father, or her father, grandpa, had climbed into the crib, holding on to the sleeping grandson, just curled up, holding on to the baby. Dad, what are you doing, she said. The father smiled and said, hey, you told me not to take him out of the crib. You never said I couldn't get in the crib with him. <laughs> and aren't you glad that Jesus never leaves us alone, but instead promises to get in this life with us? And here's the point of it all. The key, church, is we've got to let Jesus in the boat, man. We've got to let him in. Don't row the boat alone in these storms. Let Jesus in the boat. Let his presence calm you. And as we let Jesus in the boat and we turn to him in faith, prayer, and thanksgiving, the peace of God will always calm our hearts and minds in the midst of those storms that we're facing. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 so perfectly puts it, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> Sorry. So in everything, give thanks to God in prayer. Pray to him, thank him, that even though the waves are crashing, the boat is rocking, the wind is blowing, the lightning's cracking, and the thunder 
is rumbling in our lives. God is there. God loves you. God died for you. And praise God, one day he will wipe every tear from our eyes. I'd like to invite the worship team uh, back up as I close. And I wanted to remind you of some encouragement we can find in Psalms 35, 30 verse 5. It says, for his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for life. But listen to this part, church. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Joy comes in the morning. As we pray and the worship team comes up, we're also, because as is custom here at Calvary Chapel, we're going to provide communion. And as you think through the message today, and we'd love to have you if you need prayer to come up afterwards, we'd love to pray with you. If you don't know the Lord personally, if you're struggling, and if you want to know him today, we'd, we'd love to pray with you. If you're new as well, we'd love to bless you with a gift from our bookstore. But I want to read a passage in Luke 22, 19 through 20, just as a reminder of communion as it, uh, as it will be handed out. It says in verse 19, and they took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he also took the cup after saying, this cup is my new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Jesus came to this earth, physically calmed storms, and he died and rose again so we can have eternity with him. And he calms every storm in our life if we can give it to him and if we allow him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this time today. And I pray for anybody struggling in this room, anyone hurting in this room, that they would be encouraged today. That we know, Jesus, we don't have to row this boat alone in the storms of life, that you're there with us, that you love us, that you died for us. We pray, Lord, today that you are glorified and you are honored in all that we do. In your holy name we pray, amen.